All right, we're live and we're rolling. Welcome back to The Real Venture, a fresh perspective on real estate, technology, and business trends for young entrepreneurs by young entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Peyton Truitt, joined as always by my co-host, Luke. Luke, how are we doing today? Uh, pretty good, Peyton. It's a blistery day here in Denver. Um, I've been uh, kind of just, um, you know, having fun in life, not doing too much. Uh, what about you? What have you been up to? You know, it, it's been actually, it's been a beautiful week here in Austin. It was, uh, it was 80 yesterday. Uh, got to head out to the golf course, hit a couple balls. Um, awesome. It was a good time. Got a little sunburnt. You know, if you're, if you're watching. Man, on the, uh, it's that sunny. I, dude, it's I that need to sunny. get down there. I know we're wait we're waiting for you, yeah. and then we can actually do this live in person, which would yeah. be pretty dope. But uh, freaking rooms and instead of sitting in these rooms, room. yeah, you guys, uh, we're we're overcoming all kinds of uh, technical challenges here. Yeah. But uh, you know, the the fun part about it is is we're learning. Um, you know, if you ask us any questions about virtual uh, virtual meetings now, you know, we're almost we're almost experts. We're almost so experts. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm still a novice. Peyton's an expert. I'm getting there. We're getting there. We're, we're, we're bringing Luke along slowly. You know, he may be the smartest tech guy in the entire world, but when it comes to actual applications of, uh, you know, media technology, uh, including social media, he's he's not quite there yet, Especially but we're going to get him one day. social media. I'm getting Especially there, though, social man. media. We got to get, get the dude to repost our own clips. You know what I mean? We're, uh, we're getting there, though. He's doing a much better job, so. Thank you, Peyton. I appreciate the support. So actually, today's episode is just going to be Luke and I, and we're going to talk about uh, an area that we think is pretty interesting, which is infrastructure. And the cool thing about infrastructure is there's a lot of different components of it. And I think, you know, our third grade teachers would be really proud of us because we're actually going to start with a dictionary definition of what infrastructure is, and then we're just going to completely rip it apart and destroy it. So infrastructure is pretty much just the set of fundamental facilities and systems that support sustainable functionality of households and firms. So Luke, go ahead and let's start breaking that down. Yeah, um, so I mean, uh, just to uh, give some color to why infrastructure as well for the for this episode, I mean, I think that uh, kind of like the, the context and thinking about infrastructure from a technological perspective is super interesting, um, but mostly because it's one of the least um, I guess advanced parts of kind of the the way that the current economy works. Um, why and, do you mean? Why do you mean it's not advanced? Well, I think that a lot of the um, supporting functions and the reason that it's uh, um, you know a, a slower and expensive thing to develop is because it's still very manual and it relies a lot on uh, things like construction, which have kind of progressed less as it relates to technology and had less technolo- uh, technological innovation. Um, uh, you know, enhance that worker productivity and construction uh, has advanced less than any other. Uh, industry's productivity as a result of technology. And I think that um, when you look at kind of both costs of infrastructure and the the speed at which infrastructure projects are completed, um, it's very relevant to see that it's, um, you know, kind of something that's been uh, been neglected a bit from a technological perspective. But that's changing. There's lots of uh, folks who have taken it upon themselves to uh, to get into that space and see what they can change. But, um, uh, but yeah, I think that, you know, from our perspective, it's something that is maybe not something we can do directly, uh, but it is something that is interesting and it applies to things like real estate, which we're working on, um, as well as just kind of generally thinking about how technology can improve uh, even industries like construction. So I think, like, like you said, one of the most visible signs of infrastructure and uh, construction coming together is going to be roads and bridge constructions, right? We see it every single day in our cities. We see it uh, on the highway, but that's, 
you know, infrastructure doesn't just stop there, right? It, it continues on. What are some other forms of infrastructure? Yeah. And I think when you, when you said the definition, um, you know, kind of lends itself to a lot of different things, thinking about like what actually makes um, kind of like the core, the plumbing of a society, of a firm, of a household, whatever the case may be. Uh, and so that's things like education, law enforcement, um, even energy, uh, dams, things that can uh, kind of indirectly uh, help a help a society kind of move forward on an energy front, on a, um, a personal and, and professional development front and a security perspective. And so when somebody says, oh, hey, you know, this area doesn't have the infrastructure to support that. That state that is like a blanket statement, right? It could refer to the roads. It could refer to the school systems. It could refer to the emergency services, whatever the case may be. So, you know, when you're out there and, and you're hearing somebody talk about infrastructure, you know, we just want to drill in the fact that the roads might be perfectly fine. Yeah. Uh, and infrastructure, like we just said, is so broad. I mean, there could be a multitude of different reasons or, you know, more likely the case is the infrastructure and every single different component of it is mediocre, right? The roads are okay. The schools are okay. The law enforcement's okay. The government uh, programs in the area, they're okay. But all of that in culmination together yeah. equals poor infrastructure. Yeah, in some I mean, cases. it really is, you know, the, the, uh, is it a sum of its part? Is it equal to the sum of its parts, greater than the sum of its parts? But in a lot of cases, it can be less than the sum of its parts. If you've got a bunch of average infrastructure kind of making up your society, um, it makes it really hard for you to kind of do anything. If you've got a 15 minute, 20 minute delay to do, uh, you know, to get to work because the roads aren't great. If you've got uh, your kids not learning as much as they should because the schools aren't great. Um, all of that kind of stuff kind of compounds and, and makes things a lot more uh a lot more negative. So when you look at something like the infrastructure bill, uh, very little of it uh, is necessarily roads and bridges and things like that. It's also, uh, you know, big portions of that bill have been set aside for things like universal pre-K, uh, improved um, uh, emergency response facilities and things like that. So um, yes, like you said, very diverse uh, and it's something that is, you know, super important. So yeah. So like on those bills, it's, you know, everybody zeroes in on the road. They're like, oh, this is a $4 billion road project. No, it's a $4 billion project that centers around the road, but also has a lot to do with the people and items that are going to be accessing that specific kind of infrastructure. And, you know, I, I just got to ask a stupid question here, but like, when you think of infrastructure, you know, what do you, what do you think of? Like, what, what is that singular item that pops into your head? Cause I bet it's different for everybody. You think so? I mean, I think for me, infrastructure, uh, infrastructure, roads, bridges, um, maybe just like that's the, uh, the the thing that's just ingrained in me from, you know, seeing people always working on stuff. You see a money passed, it's for the roads and you see all the people working on the roads. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would say education, law enforcement, all that stuff was not on the top of my mind. Yeah, no. And, you know, I think that also stems back to, so my background was in supply chain management in undergrad. So intermodal transportation, I think is one of the coolest things in the entire world. Like, right. Uh, a, a ship comes into the port. How many different forms of infrastructure does it travel on in order to get to your yeah. front door? And, you know, one of the areas of infrastructure that I'm just really interested in is, is railroad. And I think that, you know, rail has kind of had its ups and downs over the course of American history, right? You know, it was the item that connected the coasts back in the 1800s. Uh, it still moves the majority of our heavy freight, but there's also kind of a little bit of a resurgent of the idea of, of, of light rail, um, you know, shorter distance, high-speed trains. When it comes to infrastructure like that, you know, what, what do you think is, you know, what, what's going to come as a result of that? What's going to happen with that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think rail, rails, um, rails still going to be important, just mostly from the uh, perspective that, you know, people, a lot of people need to get from a generic point A to a generic point B, and it's not really worth driving themselves or, uh, you know, taking um, kind of individual forms of transportation. And so the idea that you can have this, you know, group uh, transportation from one major population center to another makes a lot of sense. And I think that that'll stay around with things like, uh, you know, Elon Musk's boring company doing Hyperloops and stuff like that. There's one going up in uh, Nevada right now that's, or in Las Vegas, that's, you know, under the, uh, under the strip. Um, that's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, and so I think like that light rail, like you mentioned, uh, will probably continue to, to grow. It's big in Asia and Europe. Uh, yeah, that's I, think, I think there's also, I think there's also some geographical ties to it, right? Like the, the East coast, just from a historical standpoint has always had a great rail system. Uh, you know, the Amtrak's the the commuter trains, it's kind of just a way of life out there, right? If you want to get from Washington DC to Philly, you're very likely going to take a train, right? It's congested. The roads are packed. The train is probably the best option, but when you live in Indiana, like where I'm from, we pretty much just drive everywhere because it's it's flat and you just hop on a single well, and you don't have people right like if you if you're like let's take a train from west lafayette to indianapolis like how many people are hopping on that every day um and you've got a ton of people going but like still if 50 percent of them are taking cars it's probably not worth it for the train company to uh to offer the you know that route and so I feel like, yeah, keeping it in dense population centers, it's a great thing. I think, you know, with the kind of increased push in green energy, I think that it's, uh, you know, a more fuel efficient way of getting people places, especially if you electrify it, um, which uh, which longer term seems like it's going to make a lot of sense. Uh, but I do think it requires a ton, a ton of upfront investment. And so if a private company is going to do it, they're going to need to see dollar signs somewhere. Uh, and if the government's going to do it, you know, you've got to get all all the people in Washington to to agree on that. But so that right there, let's talk about funding. So right now, these big public infrastructure projects, how are they funded? Well, I mean, I think, it, you know, the number one way is, is public funding. Um, that's where a lot of this comes from. It's something like 500 billion or so dollars a year uh, is going towards just generic, broad infrastructure uh, projects. And so that's coming from, you know, tax dollars. Um, there is, though, you know, quite a bit of research been done on the idea of uh, the, the fact that we're, we kind of have an infrastructure gap. So we've, uh, we've kind of underspent on infrastructure for a long time. Uh, and that has led us to kind of this point where, um, uh, you know, even if we are to put in $1.2 trillion, which is kind of like the proposed number now, we'd still be uh, quite a bit behind. The American Civil Engineering Society gave us a, a D plus on our infrastructure compared to a lot of other developed nations, which, you know, that is uh, you know big negative, but it just means that we, as the you know taxpayers, the ones who are going to have to foot that bill, unless we can think of more, you know, creative ways of funding all that. But I'm not sure what what thoughts you have. Any other uh, major? Well, first, first off, let's break down that that gap. Like, why did that gap form in America, unlike other places? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, more of an emphasis on um, the other programs rather than a lack of emphasis on infrastructure. So, like, I think that the uh, infrastructure is not something that's sexy, and it's generally speaking not something that. Uh, is is put in the forefront, especially in good economic periods, and we've had mostly good economic periods. Last time we made a you know major uh, infrastructure bill was during the um, uh, Great Recession, and before that, it had been a long time since we'd really put emphasis on it uh, from a policymaking perspective. And well, that you know, makes that makes sense. I mean, like when it's you know times are good, money's flowing. 
why would we take the time to fix roads and, and rails and, and all of this infrastructure that works, quote unquote, works yeah. at this moment when we could spend it on, you know, different social issues or, um, you know, national defense, whatever the case may be, whatever, you know, the, the big uh, political item is at the time. I can totally see how infrastructure can kind of get swept under the rug. Yeah. And I mean, I think this leads into a bigger problem that I think our country is going to face here as, as we grow up. But, uh, you know, the idea that most of our budget is going towards Social Security, Medicare and defense, like that's where most of the money uh, that, that we're paying in taxes is going to, um, especially as our population ages. And, and it's like, OK, there's even less taxpayers and more people that need this. So that number is going to grow and the total tax money is going to shrink. Not to mention the $4 trillion that we spent in uh, coronavirus period that we didn't have and, and the ballooning national debt is um, all leading us kind of away from the idea that let's focus on infrastructure. Um, although uh, infrastructure can be one of kind of like the best ways the government can spend money in a, in a time like this where you, know, you have a lot of people out of work. Um, you have a government that's willing to spend money because all those people are out of work um, and, and you can kind of use this combination of putting people back to work uh, by spending public dollars to improve your country while revitalizing the economy. Uh, and I think that it makes for you know, a, really, a really awesome policy decision, but people just have not been uh, 100% committed to it. Though we'll see. Uh, it's going to keep you know, getting pushed forward. And, and, it's not, and it's not sexy. I mean, who wants to you know, inspire all these people to go back to work to help you know, roads build bridges. roads, but you know, you can always kind of flip it and, you know, and this is a big, like, you know, political, you know, you can twist it very positively to be like, Hey, let us help rebuild America by fixing our infrastructure. You know, I think that there's another good example in history with the uh, Tennessee Valley authority, the TVA, that was a massive infrastructure project that, you know, they, they dammed up the, the Tennessee river in a bunch of different spots. It brought power and you know, through dams to, to a lot of rural areas of, of Tennessee, but also it provided a ton of jobs that got a lot of people out of poverty, um, you know, started to set up different ways of life for, for areas of our country that normally wouldn't have access to it. So like massive infrastructure projects like that are an incredible idea and something that's very lucrative, not only for the state or the government itself, but also for the people that are going to be working on it and then also benefiting from it in the end. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it makes sense too, right? If you're going to give somebody $100 as either unemployment or to have them work for a couple of weeks building a road, uh, at the end of the day, they're getting their money. And in one scenario, you know, society gets a road. In the other scenario, um, you know, you don't. And so I think that uh, that is like the purely economic argument. I think that there's other you know, issues with just, you know, kind of having people work for their money. Uh, and, and that's not always a solution, but um, it's definitely one that will be exciting if, if we do end up getting this, you know, multiple um, hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure funding. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of awesome things popping up. But that that leaves out kind of the, the other major chunk of funding, which comes from private industry. Um, so a lot of things, especially energy, um, but also railroads, uh, some airport funding um, is coming from the private sector and, and companies or um, financiers that want to see uh, either a return on that investment or use it to, to kind of further other investments that they may have. Um, let's, and- let, let's, let's pause right here and break down kind of what we were talking about there. I mean, private funding is so attractive to so many different people for a couple of different reasons, right? We, one, you know, when you're actually the, the, the financee, or I'm sorry, the financer, where you're providing the capital in this case, you're evaluating the project based on ROI, right? You know that if you build this road, this toll road, for example, you know X number of people are going to travel on it. It's going to generate X amount of revenue a year. 
Therefore, you know, you're able to go to your investors and, you know, this becomes a big rolling money snowball, right? You know, down the hill. But it's also attractive for the government because the government is not going to have to use its resources on that specific build, even though it's, you know, kind of their responsibility in some cases. But, you know, being able to outsource it to a private, uh, you know, to a private group for, for fundraising is is extremely lucrative to both parties. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the, um, you know, the the Chicago uh, Skyway toll bridge uh, is a great example of that we talked about that earlier, but um, just the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the idea that you have a, a piece of land or a, a road or whatever the case may be that the government's going to have to pay a lot to maintain. Um, it's obviously generating revenue for the government if they own it. Uh, but it does just create this extra thing that's on their balance sheet that they have to think about and and allowing a private company to just take it over so they can put it put it behind them um, has worked out well for Chicago so far. And it's a was it like a 99 year lease. So clearly they're not going to have to think about that bridge for, for quite a while. But um, no, that is some of the most secure forecasting that you will ever see is yeah, a 99, 99 year lease. 99 you, can, years. you can budget that for sure. Um, I actually saw a uh, it's pretty funny. There's a so Yale's endowment has a bond from a Dutch water company from 1648 uh, that is a perpetual bond. It's like 3.5 or 2.5% interest in perpetuity, and they still just collect money on it. It's crazy why, to me that it's still around. Why did that happen in the first place? Well, so they were funding an aqueduct. So, you know, you know Amsterdam is underwater. Um, yep. And so I think, I think this was a part of the project to just kind of like continue to like dredge it and, and make, maybe it was making a canal or something, but uh, I didn't really understand necessarily the purpose. The, you know, the point of the thing I was reading was more that Yale's got this like thing written in, in uh, uh, Dutch. That's like, you know, telling them that they have 2.5% interest forever. But um, so it's been in place for 350 years or something, which is, just crazy to think about something being around that long, but you know, 99 years now doesn't seem too long, but, um, no, you know, the other, the other area where privatized funding is, is kind of relevant and, you know, pretty cool in relation to us. Cause we like sports so much is like funding sports stadiums, like, oh, yeah. uh, LA's new stadium and Las Vegas's are both, I believe 100% privatized money. Yeah. So it is an extremely lucrative, you know, the city of Las Vegas, Absolutely. They want that to happen because yeah. when there's a game or an event or the final four or whatever the case may be, people are going to flock to Vegas. They're going to gamble all night. They're going to drink. They're going to eat. They're going to stimulate the city, but they didn't have to pay a single dime for the actual reason that the people are there to come. Yeah. I mean, you'd be out of your mind to not think that that's an Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's an interesting point. I think that that's happened in a few other um, you know, relevant instances. I don't think there's a ton of private roads or things like that, but even like airports uh, and similar things, there, there are, you know, a good bit of uh, private investors who have taken an interest uh, in getting involved in that over the, you know, probably the last 40, 50 years. Um, and one of the metrics that, uh, you know, is often cited with regard to how little the, uh, the U.S. has spent on infrastructure is the percent share of GDP uh, that, you know, we spend on infrastructure. And it's kind of steadily uh, been declining kind of over the last like 10, 15 years. Um, but maybe a big factor in that is the, uh, you know, the privatized investment. And yes, we haven't spent enough, but privatized investment may have been made uh, up some of that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. No, playing like playing devil's playing devil's advocate on this, why, why would the United States want to change any of this if people are just going to step up and pay themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, but I think, I, I don't know who the hell is going to pay for, uh, you know, like uh, a highway. 
like there's no money made on a highway, right? You know, who's unless, unless you start charging toll. tolls, right? And I think privatized roads are a super interesting idea. I love the idea of privatized roads, but uh, I don't think that it's anything that's like widely, you know, uh, accepted beyond like toll roads uh, and and like well, okay, you know, interstates so and things like that. So let's think about that. So a lot of rail is privatized, right? It's owned by Union Pacific. It's owned by, yeah, exactly. And they charge a fee or a toll or whatever the correct word is in that industry for other trains to pass on their track. And what's really, you know, cool is, is when this rail was laid so long ago, they claim some good routes, right? You know, there are some passes through mountains, stuff like that, bridges, et cetera, that Union Pacific owns that everybody is going to have to use and everybody's going to have to pay. So I don't even know how that would happen in today's world. So if you wanted to connect two different highways, I mean, could could we just go out there, finance a road, and just build it, and then <laughs> yeah, literally I mean, lock the gates until somebody pays? I, that's that's I've actually wondered that as well, I, and just been like, what if you bought you know twenty mile stretch of land that connected two major interstates that aren't connected right now? Um, and can you charge I mean, for no for reason? That? I don't know why you would do that, but yeah. Well, I mean, if, if it's something that you're like, Oh, like the next, you know, way to, way to turn around is not till Chicago. Uh, and That's you're going to have to sit in traffic for a couple hours. Right. And you can like, Oh, I could just like jump over now and not worry about that. Like it might make sense to, uh, to build something like that. And you know, you're responsible for, for making it nice and all that stuff. But I, I have a feeling that if, if you were to have a road road like that, um, you know, the person who, who built that and is collecting a toll on it has a pretty strong incentive to keep, uh, um, keep it going. Yeah. Okay. So two questions just popped into my mind from that. Okay. First one is going to be eminent domain. If we build this privatized road that connects two government roads, right. You know, two different major highways. Mm-hmm. If the government wanted to come through an eminent domain and take literally the exact middle parcel of land and completely disconnect our road, they could do that. Yeah. Right. All they have to do is offer us market value. And then and we can we can break that down any further if you want. And then the second one is if it's a privatized road, are we completely liable for any injuries, deaths, anything bad that happens on our stretch of private road? Yeah, I mean so, so to answer the eminent domain one, I mean I think that that is definitely a definitely a risk, but do you think it's any more that would suck. Yeah, I mean that would that would suck, but do you think that you would be able to price in kind of the uh the value of of the toll on that road and say, well, you know, into this is like, you know, present, you know, future value of this is like I don't know, a few billion dollars when, you know, maybe it's only generating like you know, a couple hundred million dollars, a couple million dollars, whatever it may be. Um or do you think that you'd have to kind of do it at like, oh, no, this like acre of land is no, yeah, I mean, the government just has to offer you fair market value. So if I, you're, if, if the land it's on, even though you have a $20 billion road and I mean, don't quote me on this cause I'm not hundred percent sure, but to my understanding, if you have a $20 billion valued road, but you're sitting on a million dollar parcel of land, I think the government just has to offer you a million dollars for it. Yeah. That's, um, and then that's boom, interesting. That would gone. be unfortunate if that was the, uh, the answer, because I don't think anybody would build that. But don't you think that's true of like any private railroad? Why would any railroad company build a railroad? You know, that that is a great point, and I don't I don't know. Yeah, I would assume we got to do some research. More, yeah, there's probably more to that. Well, everybody, we're going to do our research and come back to you with something. Um, I think the other thing you would ask is about injuries. I mean, what is the case in like a public road? Like, if somebody gets in a crash on a public road, is the government gets sued like the, what happened? I, don't, I don't know can you can you sue the city of austin if you 
got injured on a stretch of I-35 in Travis County? I mean, I, don't I know. bet you could. You know, when you were coming into Dallas, I was driving down there back in December, and that road, it was raining. That thing is pretty dangerous, that interstate. And then I saw on the news about a month ago, uh, there was a huge pileup after that, that icy, icy week in, uh, in Texas. Yep. So, I mean, like that kind of stuff, it's like, okay, it's just like a poorly designed road. Like, can you sue the person who designed the road? I don't think it's poor infrastructure is what it is. Poor. Exactly. We need more, we need more funding, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I think the the more exciting one to me, I think definitely roads are exciting because I think that it'd be awesome to have, um, you know, more, uh, more privatized roads, but I I don't really know what that necessarily looks like as we've kind of landed on, but what about energy? I think energy is a really cool part of infrastructure that is often ignored because energy is so cheap now. But, you know, with stuff like the Texas uh, blackouts, like, you know, it's a little bit more more relevant now. What What is uh, in your mind, like kind of the um, the phases to where government should be involved in the funding and support of uh, energy infrastructure? Well, so the events in Texas make me completely doubt my original statement because the Texas Air, ERCOT, ER. Yeah. yeah, ERCOT. Um, not 100% sure what it breaks down to in the acronym, but basically the, the Texas infrastructure or the Texas energy infrastructure is privatized and has been for a very long time, I believe like since like the 1930s. And obviously that's been a very lucrative venture for some people, you know, as we've kind of mentioned and talked about the, the positive sides of, of privatized infrastructure. But it was designed to handle the typical Texas weather, as in really, really hot summers. Uh, being from Indiana, Luke's from Minnesota. We're both from very cold places, albeit Luke's is much colder than mine. <laughs> our energy infrastructure is designed to handle that kind of weather. Our houses are, you know, built in a way to our pipes are insulated. Like we don't have to drip our faucets where we're from. But down here, people were freaking out, and a- as a result, you know, the temperatures dipped, energy usage went up. And basically, we were minutes from from destroying our entire energy grid. And then that's where the rolling blackout started and things kind of rolled downhill. But one of the problems that everybody kind of went back to is they, everybody wanted to blame the government, but the government came back out and said, well, we don't run it. So it was kind of the first red flag that pops up. It's like, okay, well, like, who's going to be held accountable in a situation like this if it's not the government? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, I, I was reading a good bit about that back when kind of that was all going on. I was like, wink, why, why is this happening? Um, and, you know, the government came to to the, you know, the Texas power grid and said, hey, guys, like you you need to winterize your energy. Uh, that was like 2011 or something. Um, and they they kind of just like rolled their Because there was a really bad whatever. storm in 2011. That's kind yeah, of that was like, like what thing. happened kind of happened. I'm not like, sure. Not that, quite. Right, yeah. right. Like it was like it got to almost that point, but it didn't quite cause blackouts and that stuff. Uh, and so like it was scary. People were you know struggling, but nobody, I don't think anybody lost all their power or very little compared to this time. And then I think it happened again in 2014. And that was even worse. Uh, and they said, come on, guys, you got to you gotta winterize your stuff. Uh, and I think that they still ignore them. And so what what's basically happened is interesting. The power grids everywhere but Texas are public. So uh, the federal government has kind of domain over 
like their maintenance and, and is responsible for making sure that it's good. There's still private companies that operate it and generate electricity and all that stuff. Um, but the actual grid, the thing that connects all the houses to the power plants and all that stuff um, is public. And so the federal government has a, a commission that goes around and like, you know, determines what needs to be, you know, made more secure and all that stuff. Uh, and so these states or these, these private companies have to uh, comply, but Texas doesn't. Um, and since Texas didn't have to comply, it was sort of just more like a recommendation. You know, federal government had no way to say like, yo, you guys got to you know, get that stuff winterized now. Otherwise something bad's going to happen and then something bad happens. So I think the, the interesting thing is one, you know, what is going to happen to these private companies because of this? Like, is anything going to change? Are they going to winterize stuff at least now uh, or what? And then the other thing is like ERCOT like didn't really do its job either. Uh, they were supposed to be kind of a more regulatory agency and they just kind of sat back uh, and watched. And I think they, they profited a good bit from it um, as well. And it may just be more profiting in a political sense, but. Um, well, they had to um, like, I'm going to make up a number and say that they had 12 board seats. And seven of them were people that were out of town and they all had to, you know, out of state, right? Seven people that lived outside of Texas and they all had to resign, um, which kind of goes back to like the, the, the sense of urgency, right? Nobody really understood it unless they yeah. were in that situation. And that's kind of what happens when you privatize because whoever is, owns, you know, the biggest chunk of the company, whoever owns the most shares, they're the ones who sit on the board that could be literally anybody from anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it brings up an interesting, interesting point. I like the idea of very limited government and all that stuff uh, in some sense. Um, but I think, you know, the government is there for a very specific purpose at times, like, you know, no matter kind of what you think, like the ability to handle crises and plan for crises is something that is like uniquely um, a skill that the government is supposed to have. Maybe they don't do it perfectly every time, but things like coronavirus, war, or, you know, in this case, extreme weather. Uh, are things that private companies aren't really meant to handle because it's not really something that directly impacts them until it does, uh, and then they're not, you know, really prepared for it. So, did events like this did this permanently taint privatized, inv- uh, you know, infrastructure, or what is you know privatized infrastructure going to look like going forward? I just, I just think, I mean, it, it's just going to, you know, kind of put a heavier regulatory blanket over all of it, right? Like the privatized infrastructure part of this, and that wasn't necessarily the problem. It was that the privatized infrastructure didn't have any incentive to, uh, you know, prepare for the future and prepare for bad you know, scenarios like this. And so, I mean, if I'm, uh, if I'm ERCOT or I'm, you know, Texas government, I'm saying, you know, you guys can stay private, but you got to follow rules now and we're going to set the rules for you. Um, that yeah. make sure that this doesn't happen again. And so I think that's the combination that is probably going to end up happening in Texas. And I think for a lot of these infrastructure projects, if we talk about roads being privatized, uh, maybe the government does need to have you hit certain standards and things like that. Um, just like you do in, you know, you're selling drugs or you're selling food, right? You still have to follow the rules uh, that the government lays out. But but I think we just got to do a better job of, of making sure we follow that. Yeah. And, you know, not not to forget that there are so many rules that are within the actual building of the infrastructures, right? Think about all the rules and regulations that go into roads and bridges and, um, you know, building codes and, and things like that. It just, everything, you know, just has to kind of trickle up until it, till it affects the whole system. But kind of moving in the opposite direction into <laughs> the Wild West, where there's absolutely no, re- you know, regulation at all. Let's talk a little bit about crypto in this kind of crypto, in this world yes because well first off we got a ton of really good feedback from our nft conversation um last week so you know we really appreciate all of that and it was a really fun conversation to have and it kind of opened up some some new avenues that we weren't even thinking about specifically like crowdfunding which is literally 
exactly what we're about to talk about here. So Luke, I know you're, you're pretty passionate about crypto. So yeah, exactly. See, he's hyped. So how does crypto fit with infrastructure? Um, I, I want to say kind of at the most, um, like like kind of the surface level, I think there's a lot of ways it could, it could be impactful, but I think that the most uh, obvious and digestible one, um, is the idea of uh, fractional ownership, tokenized ownership of, of physical assets like infrastructure. Uh, so taking something that, that is physical, like a dam or a road, um, and finding a way to assign property rights to parts of that that are digital uh, and specific, unique to the person who owns them. Um, and then they're tied back financially to the success of the project or failure. Um, and I think that that is like a very broad principle um, that's true for a lot of things. But in infrastructure, it's interesting um, because if you think about something like a, uh, uh, a subdivision's energy, right? So you've got maybe 100 families in a subdivision or something. Uh, maybe I'm thinking of a, not a subdivision, but you have 100 families that need energy. Uh, and right now their option is to get it from the, from the main power uh, generation company, whether, you know, it's like, um, uh, you know, any, any of these, maybe it's freaking Texas energy companies and, and they don't really trust them after these blackouts. What they want to do is they want to find a way to get uh, you know, like maybe a solar farm set up. They're passionate about solar. Uh, they want to get something like that set up. What they can do. The, and, and when you say this, you're referring to a very small subset, as in like a community, as in a neighborhood, not the entire state. Yeah, right? I'm, and I'm is- saying that's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm saying it could be, it could be two people. It could be, you know, a hundred thousand. It could be 30 million people like Texas or whatever it is. Right. Um, the, but the, but the point is it doesn't, the scale doesn't matter as much um, as the kind of generalized, uh, essence of fractional ownership and fractional rights to revenue so that when you set up something like a power grid um, instantaneously, like if you set up, you know, solar farm, um, all the money that's generated from that by the, you know, if we said there's 100 families, maybe 30 of them want to participate in this, but all 100 families get the power that comes from that. Um, the money that's made from selling that energy to those other houses can be then distributed amongst those 30 people. And of course that's possible in kind of like a more convoluted traditional way of like, um, you know, uh, uh, building it, setting up an LLC. And then after you set up an LLC, you've got to assign like all these like fractional ownership rights to all the, the members of the LLC, you do all your you know, tax, all that stuff. Right now, it could be much, much more simple than that. And all of this, the money that needs to be used to fund that project can just be thrown into, a, um, you know, one of these smart contracts that basically just works to allow everybody who is participating in this some equal share to the, the outcome of this construction. Um, and maybe the constructions managed by kind of somebody appointed by the, the 30 people that are participating in it. But it can all be kind of taken care of automatically without risk of fraud, without risk of um, a lot of the other the other issues involving setting up a company and, and worrying about where money's flowing and all this stuff. So traditionally, if we wanted to build a road, we would probably take out a government bond, right? Yeah. And it's going to be, it's going to be this very, very secure, right? You were going to get paid back, um, our investment, but it's going to take a really long time. We're going to generate 1% of, you know, 1% ROI kind of thing. So in a proposed situation, like you just described with the fractional ownership, the ROI would come back much faster. 
Well, the ROI comes back faster. You put less on the line from a from a like a debt perspective. But also, you got to think about if you have thirty people in a hundred person community who are backing directly that project, you know their incentives are very aligned to yeah because they benefit from use it. it to maintain it to uh, promote the use of it, all that stuff, right? So it, I mean, it, it it does multiple things. It you know, aligns incentives and it creates a more uh, sustainable and safe funding route. So if we wanted, you know, we live in a community and we want to build a little league park. So we're going to, we're going to set this up. Right. And it, obviously it needs funding. We have to build the actual park. We have to maintain, um, the facilities itself. How would we go about structuring it with an ICO through a smart contract? Like how, you know, what is that thought process? And then also what kind of communication do you think has to happen with the government? You know, the, the city council is going to have to approve our use of land, right? So there is going to be a little bit of government interaction, but ultimately at the end of the day, though, we, the people, right, you know, just to, <laughs> to go back and, you know, quote the constitution, we're actually going to be the ones that are using it and paying yeah. for it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that the government, no matter what, and this is like the the thing about crypto that's a little bit annoying is that um, a lot of the space is like very much, oh, like there's no government, like we can do whatever we want kind of thing. And, and I think that's going to change quite a bit. Um, once the government does start regulating it and understands what's going on, um, you know, the OCC got very much involved in um, uh, kind of the crypto world as of 2021. So, I mean, I think that slowly but surely it's going to become regulated in some capacity. Uh, but I think you like you can't ex escape the government 100 percent, but this is probably the fastest way or at least the least friction way um, to go about doing this and, and the least government intervention. And I think the other thing is, like you mentioned, you know, like if you're getting the community to buy into something like a little league. Uh, park, um, you know, they, they're, they're choosing something that they want to spend their money on, um, as opposed to paying taxes that they think are going to maybe go to something that they care about. It, um, it would be, it would be the most attractive option for people to pay the government because everybody gets mad that, Oh, my tax money's going to this. And I don't care about that. In this situation, you literally are paying for the one thing that you care about. Exactly. And I think that there are flaws with the idea of that, just as there's like less sexy things that people can fund, like that, that need to be funded, like Medicare, for example, like nobody's going to fund Medicare if they don't have to, unless they need it. Um, but, uh, but, but there is like a portion of your money, like especially infrastructure type stuff, um, that, uh, that you might, you know, deserve some say in directly where it's going. Um, and I, and I think that, um, you know, people are willing to, to pay more money. Uh, there was a study done that I was listening to uh, on a podcast a couple of days ago. Um, but they, they basically said, uh, in one camp, they were just like, okay, you know, pay your taxes. Uh, how much more, like, would you pay if you could pay more in taxes? Like how much would you donate to the government basically? Um, and then in the other camp was like people that said, okay, everything that you donate, you get to pick where it goes. Um, and the amount of money that people gave in both scenarios is like drastically different, right? The people who get to pick where their money goes, um, are much more likely to give extra. And so maybe that's what this is. It's just an extra way to give money back to your community. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost like a form of charity in a way that you're just, you're directing your hard earned money into something that you really care about. So I just had an idea and I hope nobody steals this, but basically what I'm going to do now is I'm going to, uh, fund through an ICO, a golf course here in Austin. Right. And so basically everybody that would buy into it are people that live in the area and would benefit from it. Um, but then, you know, the attractive thing is, is once it's all funded and it's laid out and it looks great, I mean, all of that money is just going to start flowing back in. So actually, exactly. but now this kind of opens up my lack of understanding in this is how do I get paid back? 
Yeah, so so that has to do with what's called a smart contract. Um, and so basically um, what, what, I mean, at a high level, what's going to end up happening is that you go out of the golf course and you play around. Um, when you play around that, yeah, I would say here, here to make it even more fun, you only pay with crypto to play. Um, so you, you pay with crypto. Um, in the Tesla that I I show up in my Tesla that I bought, with, bought Bitcoin. with Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, okay. and, it, and it's powered by a, uh, um, you know, an Ethereum miner um, in, in Russia. But uh, the um, uh, general kind of premise would be that you, you go and you pay for your 18 holes. Um, and as soon as any, any payment registered, whether it's, you know, round concessions, whatever, um, is all getting locked up into this smart contract, which basically says, if somebody pays me, um, what I'm going to end up doing is dividing that payment, that, that dollar amount into a agreed upon format, probably stable coin, DAI, uh, USDC, whatever the case may be. And I'm going to divide that amount to like the, the most I can divide it to that, that we need to, right? Because these are things. Are and all, and are when not you're in- saying divide, you mean breaking it down. I mean, there's payback and there's maintenance. And so it, it, it falls into like a, a crypto balance, you know, balance, balance sheet, where, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, gotcha. And so, and so essentially what'll happen is that smart contract, there'll be some terms that you're agreeing to being paid on and paying out, uh, uh you know, the maintenance fees and, and the employment costs and all that stuff. But basically it's all going to kind of work in in a cycle. Maybe it's instantaneous and you're paying out things as you need to pay them out and you're receiving income as you need to receive it. Um, but it would all kind of happen as this like fluid process. Literally you wouldn't need an accountant. You wouldn't need, um, a, uh, anybody to watch the books because what this is, is it's code that says, if this happens, we're going to do this and you can trust that, right? And you make sure you write the code right, right away. But once you write the code, then it, then it's done and it's just going to work the way you think it's going to work. Um, and, uh, and the money's going to go where it, where it should. And so it, that's so like, no the, one's going to cook the books. So then we can cook the books, right? It's, it's, it's set in stone. Like that's the fundamental principle of these smart contracts is that it is what you write it to be and nothing else. And so like, you can't fake it. Um, and you can't, you couldn't like be a shady landlord and sneak in an expansion, right? Like you want to add a a new 19th hole or something crazy. Like, no, like the smart contract set up in the way it is, it's locked in. You can't do that until everything is satisfied. Yeah. And I mean, I think you bring up kind of like my biggest problem with smart contracts and crypto right now, which is um, there's these things called oracles. I think we talked about this with, uh, maybe it was Krish, but um, you know, you have to have an interface between the real world and the yeah. crypto world. And that's called an oracle. Um, but uh, but the ability to kind of know what's going on in real space uh, is important for being able to efficiently um, enforce a smart contract. Uh, and so until things like IoT um, and computer vision and things like that get a lot a lot better it's gonna be really hard for smart contracts to be able to interpret real world things so if you don't want somebody to build a 19th hole you need to really really accurately budget out what those 18 holes are going to cost because then your smart contract can can operate based on price but it can't operate based on 19 or 18 holes because it's not going to know what that means um gotcha. but uh but but eventually i think that will be the case you know you know from a bird's eye view what that course should look like right your smart contract can register once it looks like that and uh you know, then, then it might be possible, but we're not at that point yet. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. This is uh, it's a fun conversation. I hope we keep talking about crypto, man. Well, we, it. we always can talk about crypto, but most importantly, we also want to talk about what you guys want to hear more about. Um, yes, yes, yes. You know, we've, we've had a lot of people reach out and which we appreciate, like all this interaction on social media, it's, it's far surpassed what, what we thought we were going to have and, and, and things like that. So, you know, continue to, to reach out and, you know, tell us things that you're interested in if 
something, you know, gets sparked by one of the conversations that we, that we've been having, you know, we've had uh, five episodes up to this point, uh, including this one. And we've talked about a whole bunch of different things. So if there's one area that you want to hear more about, let us know. Um, something that, you know, you want us to dive in a little bit deeper. Maybe we continue this infrastructure and crypto conversation. Um, you know, you let us know. And then also, most importantly, if there's anybody specifically that you want to hear talk yes. in this format, like a guest, fire them our way. And we'll, uh, we'll do our best to reach out. You know, we're learning the hard way that, you know, even though you're, you're trying to do this, you still get rejected by people. So, uh, you know, but we're not afraid to send an email. You haven't gotten rejected by anybody. No, we're, not we're, really, but I'm sure we will very soon. Perfectly. I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, 100%. No, um, but yeah, no, I'm excited. We got some, we got some fun guests lined up, I think. And, um, I, I mean, yeah, the biggest thing is just figuring out more things that you guys want us to talk about. Cause we have a long list of things that we think are cool. Uh, but it doesn't mean you do. So, um, yeah, let us know. Let us know. And then also please, you know, continue to continue the conversation with us on social media. All of our handles will be down below in the description, but most importantly, follow, like, subscribe uh, on Apple uh, podcasts, rate and review, uh, follow on Spotify or, or whatever the, the verbiage is for, for that action, because all of that interaction really helps move the podcast forward. And yeah. like Luke just said, we have a bunch of good guests lined up and we'll continue to break down these one-on-one -on -one conversations. So we've got a lot of good material rolling, uh, rolling forward for the rest of 2021. 2021, man. All right, everybody keep it real.